Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's great to see all these faces this evening. My name is Chris Breslin, and I'm the pastor of Oak Church, one of the several churches that meets in this building. So on behalf of uh, our church, our uh, neighbor churches, uh, welcome. Welcome to our our building. We hope you uh, feel at home here. Make yourselves at home. A few logistical things. Uh, bathrooms are downstairs where you came in at the front door. You can go down that staircase, and there's a fellowship hall down there with uh, bathrooms. After uh, we finish the speaking portion, and we'll also take some questions, uh, everyone is invited to go downstairs. We have some pastries and baked goods from our friends across the street here, Scratch, uh, generously uh, provided to us by Phoebe. She's amazing. Uh, we also have some awesome coffee. Uh, by uh, La Cosecha Coffee, a roaster in St. Louis. Outside of St. Louis, Outside of St. Missouri. Louis. Yeah, yeah who, uh, hosts, or who sponsors the podcast, Road to Now. And Bob will tell you a little bit about that in a minute. So y- you're welcome to dig into that. We'll also have books on sale. Regulator Bookshop is selling books downstairs. You have a chance to um, say hi to Kate as well and maybe get them signed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. And uh and yes, and so we'll, uh, that'll all be downstairs afterwards, and, and uh, hopefully you'll get to meet someone that you don't know uh, a little later. Bob? Thank you, Chris, uh, and thank you, Kate. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's, a, it's an honor to be here. Um, Chris, about a month ago, contacted me and asked me if I wanted to do a, uh, a podcast, a live event with Kate, who I didn't know at the time. Um, and I, I, so I have a history podcast called The Road to Now. And Chris and I get together every couple months and we have coffee. And we talk about theology and we talk a little bit about history. But it was from our conversations that I was like, I need to be studying theology too. I need to be talking about the theology that I read and the, the, the theologians that, that Chris and I talk about and the, the issues. Um, and so I started doing a, a Road to Now Theology episode. And uh, then the second one airs tomorrow. The first one featured James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith. And tomorrow it features John Thea, who's a great uh, historian of American Christianity. But uh, I didn't know Kate. And I told my co-host, who is a, uh, a, a history professor at Middle Tennessee State University, about this event with Kate. And he... Uh, he, he got back to me immediately. He's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> She's incredible. Her story is amazing. Um, and her first book looks incredible about blessed, about the prosperity gospel. So anyway, I called Chris, and uh, I said, if this event could be early enough where we can get the kids in bed on time, <laughs> we'll do this thing. And so he, he obliged. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for being here. This is an amazing turnout. And uh, we really are looking forward to a great conversation. So, That's great. So speaking of blessed, yes. You and my parents, thank you for owning those two copies. This is is a signed copy. I get one dollar, by the way, per book, so this feels good. This feels real. Yeah, the royalties are still rolling in from (laughs) this. Uh, But I I love, uh, probably a lot of folks in this room know you or know a little bit about you, but maybe some... Uh, of us have come upon your work uh, just from this recent memoir. Tell us a little bit about your field of study before this. Tell us about the prosperity gospel 
what got you there from a Mennonite childhood in Canada. Sure. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, well, I'm Canadian. Like every Canadian, they bring that up, like, second one. So I'm Canadian. I'm not responsible. Um, and uh, I was driving around um, Winnipeg's only fast road called the Perimeter. It's a big circle. And then I noticed that someone had put up a traffic light, and I was deeply resentful. And I was at said traffic light, and I watched um, these crossing guards come out with a lot of wands and a lot of fanfare. And I realized that a lot of people were exiting that warehouse on Sunday. And why were they doing that? Oh, no, that's not a warehouse. That's a church. And I was horrified to realize that like this warehouse was uh, Canada's largest prosperity megachurch. And I immediately went to a friend and said, that's not for us, that's for Americans. And I thought, well, <laughs> how can we have a church uh, that looks like it's a warehouse and it has a pastor with amazing hair who received a motorcycle for Pastor's Appreciation Day? And why are my Mennonite friends going? My sweet, cheese-eating, harmless, pacifist Mennonite friends. Why are they going? Um, and then I realized, like, if Mennonites couldn't attend a prosperity megachurch, then this is for everyone in a certain way. And that was like a little puzzle. So at first it had that kind of like, what is this um, feeling? And then um, the historical part of my brain kicked in because I was 21 and my dad was a historian, which means that he ruins holidays with long <laughs> speeches about the origins of things. And, um, and I was like looking for a purpose for grad school. So I decided that wherever I would move in the States, I would attend the local Prosperity Megachurch and see if I could write some of my papers about it. So by 23, I was kind of studying it almost <laughs> full time in a way that's awkward to think about now. And then I did that for about, wow, I mean, I still go. I mean, I'll just admit, like, I still go <laughs> sometimes on the weekends. Um, <laughs> but like, I've done this for a decade. And so by 25, I, had, I was traveling the country interviewing televangelists and preachers and regular believers about how they remake their hope in light of a God of more. And so because I realized that no one had written a history about it and that people were pretty cynical, that maybe it was my job to sit with people in the pews and in hospital rooms and in the worst and the best moments of their life and ask them, like, what does it mean to expect everything from God? So I wrote a book that um, I think everyone thinks is, like, a little bit too nice. <laughs> but um, I think that's just maybe my temperament and my methodology. Um, but it's uh, the first comprehensive history of uh, the American prosperity gospel from the late 19th century till now. So that was my, that was my shtick. I only had one shtick, and that was mine. Um, I took that around the dance floor a lot. And, uh, yeah, and then two years ago, I got really, really um, – bye, family – you later. <laughs> this is like <laughs> the part that we'll um, skip. Um, <clears throat> so two years ago, I got really sick, and I got sick like out of the blue. So I was just in my office um, thinking about my next project, and then I found out that I had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So that was just like total devastation. It was like the end. Is like that's the great before of my life, where things were shiny and seemed to have a lot of direction. <laughs> and then um, in the after, I uh, wrote this other book um, where I was mostly trying not to die, and I wrote it by myself. <laughs> and uh, this is my first time like talking about it in a question and answer format in public, so. We're uh, not very good at this, so, <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be okay. It's going to be a lot of like um, public feelings, but yeah, well that was the beginning. Well, so I, I want to ask you, you grew up in a Mennonite yeah. environment. Talk about sure. what... What was Christianity for you? What did God mean to you when you were growing up? Um, well, Mennonites are people that move in packs, you know? So, like, faith was like there were tribes of humans, and they had one of 20 last names, and you could belong to them, and that was great. And if you were on the inside, then it was really lovely there. There was a lot of food and singing and churches that had... Uh, red carpet and um, like a slightly hidden drum for like <laughs> the jazzy times. Um, and, uh, and like summer camp and like the just prettiest boyfriends if you were patient enough to wait till the summer. P poor Tobin <laughs> left. Tobin, if you, if you've, has anybody read, how many people have read this book? Oh, 
Oh, thanks, yeah. guys. Tobin so is the star thanks. of this. Book. Tobin yeah. is the—he's <laughs> the total package. <laughs> I mean, my gosh! I hope my wife writes a book someday. <laughs> like, my, uh, no, like, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Talk about skateboarding and make you just ah, <laughs> So, but you and Tobin knew each other when you were yeah. very young. Yeah, I was a beautiful child bride, and it's like it was one of those things where like you know you've got to lock that down like early. So I was like, I'm a little too. Like this is like you I coach. Did your mom? Your, did your mom pull you aside yeah. when you were ten? Was like, <laughs> I was like, I knew I was gonna peak early, so I was like, <laughs> let's let's just get that one. Um, yeah. So I knew Tobin since I was fourteen, and then we dated forever, and then got married like right after, right after graduation. So you mentioned in the book that Mennonites are very conscious of of history. They are. They love um, their very sad stories. Um, they suffered a lot about 150 years ago, <laughs> and they bring it up all the time. <laughs> and I really like that. Like, they're people with an active memory. I did a bunch of um, just papers. I was trying to figure out, like, the riddle of the prosperity megachurch. And so I looked at um, hundreds and hundreds of those, like, community memory albums, like Winkler, A Century of Togetherness, you know. And, like, one of the things that really struck me about those stories was they expected to live and, and, and suffer and die together. And if, I mean, if they had a small issue, like, um, like whether they wanted to keep using a hymnal, like, they would fight it out until they achieved consensus. And if they didn't achieve consensus, like, they were known for, like, moving in mass. That's how they came to Winnipeg, which is the worst place on earth. Like, just, like, they all decided and they got there and they're like, well, are you leaving? I'm not leaving. Like, well, I guess we're all staying. And so there's hundreds of thousands of these poor, poor people. And, um... And I love their their their, their their communal framework and their determination that life is one of endless compromise, but it all can only be done shoulder to shoulder. So that is in contrast to the prosperity gospel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the prosperity gospel is, is one of its best qualities is it's incredible. The way it sets horizons for people. Like, um, if you've ever accidentally been part of a multi-level marketing presentation where it's like visualize your future um but one of the more beautiful things about being in a church like that is it like just like it lifts your eyes a little and makes you think like maybe maybe i could hope for something else maybe family togetherness is possible maybe i could improve my marriage and it offers you all these incredible tools to do that um the problem is it's a very individualistic kind of faith in which the church is one of of celebrating more but but every person is responsible for doing their best and then proving that their faith has borne out results. So it can be a little bit lonely when things go wrong. So you, you wrote of it, in this world, I deserve what I get. I earn my keep and keep my share. In a world of fair, nothing, nothing you cling to can ever slip away. That's yeah. so American. <laughs> isn't that, yeah, I mean, isn't yeah. that just kind of like the American dream? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's partly... So this is like the history lover in me says, like, it was the end of the 19th century. Um, but the amazing thing about the rise of new thought and that mental infrastructure that the prosperity gospel inherited where it says, if you visualize it and then you speak it out loud in positive words and affirmations, that you can create, you can create anything. And it makes this whole category that becomes a huge part of self-help, but it makes people into world conquerors and God men. And what's so amazing about that is it it undergirds an incredibly high theological anthropology. So like you can do anything. Um, the worst part of it is though it is it has no sort of structural or social vision for how more is achieved and what happens when one of us like stumbles and falls. It can really only be our fault. So you're diagnosed with cancer and you've spent ten years plus studying the prosperity gospel. Yeah. And when I take one class, my wife will attest to this. If I take a class online, theology class, that gets into, into me. Yeah. And we're talking about three months. Yeah. So how did studying the prosperity gospel change you? And then when you were faced with this calamity, how, how did it uh, affect your suffering or, or how you, your faith? Because if, if you'd, like if we were meeting two years, three months ago, I would have said, there is nothing about the prosperity gospel that I believe in. Like, if we were by ourselves. As a public historian, I would just be too busy avoiding the question and being intellectually generous. But, like, privately, if you would have asked me, I would say, like, nothing. The answer is nothing. 
And then I got sick, and, like, I had to make sense of how insanely, like, outraged I was. Like, I wasn't sad. I was outraged. Like, I don't know, maybe just that's everybody. Like, everybody can't imagine that it could be them. But, like, I couldn't believe it was me. Like, I, I couldn't believe that, like, my life was the one that was being taken apart. And then I was so mad and, like, so just destroyed. And I was like, well then, th well, then what? Like, what was this for? Like, I thought I did a pretty good job. Like, I'm a decent person. I'm reasonably kind, you know? I, like, not a dink most of the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so, and, like, you know, theologically, it's not like I have this big, like, works righteousness thing. But, like, as it turns out, I have this big works righteousness thing. <laughs> so. it's, it's like w where the rubber meets the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, no, it can't be me. Not yeah. me. I mean, this yeah. guy, sure. But, like, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so, yeah. Our, when our daughter, our daughter got sick and uh, she had uh, a brain tumor and it was, came out of nowhere, God bless you. And it was, uh, my... We went to Christ to suffer. Mm. Like I made my conversion in the moment of yeah. her, uh, of, of us discovering what was what had what had happened to her. But we both, my wife and I, you know, weeks later, months later, we had that talk. Is this payment for something that we did in our lives? Is this, you know? And and we were like, no, that that's not it. And Hallie didn't get sick. So I would find Christ. Right, to teach you something. Oh, it's so hard, though, not to, like, run the math because how do you find meaning and purpose somewhere but at the same time not tell yourself you know how to add things up? Like, the more I suffered, the more people, or, like, I would learn something, and then people would immediately rush in to say, like, and this is why you got so sick. And, like, I have to admit, I'm, like, a little bit reluctant about the book doing well. Like, well, now I'm stuck in that forever, right? This yeah. was, like, I'd write my sad swan song. That's right. And, like, teach a whole yeah. bunch of people. But, like, the truth is, if I, if I work forward, like, from the bio, like, from the details of my life, if I work forward to God and run my theology that way, I'm going to make mistakes. Like, I'm going to think, well, that moment when I was this, that was teaching me this, and then everything is coming together as if I can totally see the matrix. Like, the only smart things I can do is I can work backwards from the character of God. I can say, like, God is good. God loves me. God, like, desires beautiful things for my life. But can I, uh, like, conclude that I know precisely how that's going to work out and guarantee? Absolutely not. And, like, I will only fall into, like, delicious, delicious heresy if I do it that way. We, we are, we look through the glass dimly. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of, uh, lo a lot of this book s struck true and personal to, to me and, and my wife. And, and I can see why it's number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> so. <laughs> people, people. Hashtag, hashtag <clears throat> blessed. You know. <laughs> people, uh. We all we all suffer, right? Oh, yeah. We all suffer. It's it it might not be, um, we get cancer ourselves. It could be a, yeah. a loved one. It could be a divorce. It could be yeah. bankruptcy. It could be anything. Yeah. Any alcoholism. Any, any number of things. Yeah. Um, but you, th this threw you into the medical world. You found yourself. You were on kind of on the top of academia. Yeah. I mean, you went to Yale. So shiny. I was. I was so yeah. shiny. Duke, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. that's that's up there. <laughs> and, and, yeah. s and, and so now uh, you find yourself having a nurse say, get used to dying. Get yeah. used to the idea of dying. Yeah. So how did that feel? I think, like, the second I got sick, I felt really disposable. Like, it's something about the way people talk to you. Like, they can kind of see through you. Like, like, you feel like you're not real anymore. Like, everyone else is in color, and you're just, like, grayscale. And, like, part of it is just how hospitals make you feel. You know, all of a sudden, you're, like, like, like you know, like, I got to do my hair today. That makes me feel special. But, like, when you're sitting in a hospital, it's, like, sad, rough cotton. And, like, <laughs> anything that felt, like, ornamental or decorative or, like, like, you took a second, everything, 
your body just doesn't feel like yours anymore. Like I was always like taking some terrible medical shower and then like finding some weird sticker or needle I didn't expect on my body. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, like is this me? Is this mine? Like am I real? And like I've met so many people since then that um, I don't know, like they're the hospital person or they're the like they're the post-tragedy person and their life feels really fragile and everything about them feels fragile and everyone else feels like real and durable and like indestructible and like that like that humbled me like I don't feel indestructible anymore I feel I feel connected to everyone else and like I don't I don't I hope I wasn't arrogant before but like it has made me realize how much everyone is struggling to keep it together um, I read up to the last two chapters of the book and I'm thinking, she is really funny. Oh, thanks. And we can all tell how Aww, what a great sense of humor you have and how witty you are. And then I listened to the last two chapters on on Audible, which I recommend that too because she reads it. And I have not heard it yet. I hope it's okay. It, well, it it was uh it was raw. I mean, Aww. it was just it was heavy. It, you you were still it was still yeah. funny, but it was more cynical. Yeah, well, I hated doing it, I'll be honest. I hated doing it. Because, like, that was the first time I had to say that all out loud. And, like, I wrote it down so that no one would have to hear how horrible it was. Like, this is the stuff, like, I don't know, when you said earlier, with your experience, like, you're the dad and I'm the patient. Like, these are two parallel overlapping worlds. And, like, I wrote so much of that down to protect it. Like, protect my family and protect my husband and my parents from, like, the rawness of how it felt so it felt it's been weird to like say out loud all the stuff I was hiding I think this just this performative cheerfulness stuff like it's really hard for me to like strip away and just be the like totally mostly tired fragile person that I really am so how was it interacting with your parents through all this like when you when you told your parents that you had found out and you found why don't you tell us how you found out you had cancer, like how, how that all came about, because that's just really powerful. Uh, well, I'd had like stomach pain, and I'm pretty assertive. Like I'm pretty assertive. So I, I always went to, I went to the doctor. I went to like a bajillion different experts, and I kept getting sent home. Like I went to the ER, and they sent me home with Pepto-Bismol and like a Like don't, people come in here with all kinds of things these days. I was like, it, it was, it, I was in so much pain, but I present well. And it was always working against me. And so finally, I yelled at a medical professional. <laughs> I mean, I yelled at a medical professional. <laughs> I was like, I am not leaving this room. Like, you are not sending me out there until you give me a test. And then he gave me the test, and I figured it was my gallbladder or something. Just well, they offered to take your gallbladder. Oh, yeah, they were going to take that out. And I don't want to give away the store here, but, but like literally, the surgeon was like, I could take out your gallbladder. Maybe it'll still hurt, maybe it won't, but yeah. it's kind of up to you. It's so charming, yeah. Um, <laughs> man, like, yeah, like, there, it's like, and then that's, th and that's one of the more exhausting parts about navigating the American healthcare system. It's really pay to play. So I can pay to have anybody do anything, and then I'm the arbiter of all these t super intense decisions. And, like, it's so hard to have somebody who's going to be there and say, like, I will take responsibility for the totality of what you're experiencing right now instead of, like, I'm going to check off my box and then, like, I'm out of there. So, yeah, I um, yelled at a medical professional, and then um, I got my test, and then I was in my office um, at Duke when I got a phone call from, like, his assistant casually telling me that I had stage 4 cancer. And, like, I couldn't even hear what she was saying. It just like it didn't it didn't make sense. The call we all dread getting from our doctor. Yeah, and I was like on my treadmill. So there's no dignity. <laughs> like I was on my work treadmill, which is I still have. Um, if you didn't work at Duke, you probably wouldn't have a wor uh, work treadmill. <laughs> probably right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> I set it up like a dorm room too, like a half a mini fridge and a and a microwave. It's like and a basically a sleeping bag. Um, yeah, I got this phone call from. A real charmer, and uh, and then and then I and then just everything came crashing down, and then I and then like I think, and then I think I called Tobin, and I think my friend came, and like but I could barely, I could just, 
all you could, it's like you go into emergency brain and emergency brain is really concerned about your family and just like like settle like settling things. So I had to like call my parents on that walk over to the hospital and then just sit there and like wait for a surgery that I was positive I was not going to live through. So it was like it it all happened really fast. Oh hey. Hi. <laughs> hey buddy. Uh, so uh, I, I was curious about early on, uh, I think before the book came out, I went on Amazon and read some of the reviews and there was this one terrible review, I don't <laughs> know how the guy or whoever got, got the book, but he took great exception with the fact that it felt like for him uh, that the, the place that you located God's presence or intervention was only in your family and only in your friends or mm. whatever. And for him, that was that was wrong. Worth one, that was worth one star. <laughs> yeah. That was the wrong answer. Um, and 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 I read that and I, I said, yeah, you're you're right. Mm. You know, um, talk talk a little bit about um, not not just about the people that came around you, that, and that's worth talking about all night. But uh, specifically, how they became dispensers of mm. Christ's presence mm. for you. Wow. Well, because that was, like, the community piece was amazing. As it turns out, teaching pastors for a living is super convenient if you're really sick. So thanks, Chris. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the hospital had to, like, was, like, a little confused about the number of people who had chaplaincy privileges <laughs> to come talk to me. And I was like, oh, that's everyone. That's basically everyone. Sorry about that. Um, and that was amazing. And that was like, that was my best experience by far with Duke Divinity School was like, they were church to me in the most incredible way. Like they prayed for me. They prayed for me with an intensity which is now embarrassing to them. And I love that. I love that. Yeah, they humiliated themselves before God for me. <laughs> and like that's, I love that. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess. Um, yeah, um, but my peeps. Um, I don't know. So, so honestly, part part of the answer to your question is something I'm actually still trying to figure out because it's only recently occurred to me that like we were having very different experiences. Yeah. <laughs> like, like my the more I suffered, the more I felt Christ's presence yeah. somehow, and like I couldn't really. It was like embarrassing to talk about because I'm. Um, intellectual and very, mm. very cerebral, and um, I just felt, I just felt God's presence there, like in the hospital room. And when I went home, I felt different. I felt, I felt loved, and like I saw that um, everywhere. And like it's been harder for me to realize that like Tobin and I have had very different experiences. Like he was so like he was so rock solid. He, he was so durable to me. You know, he was, like, one of the only things that made me feel real. Mm. And my parents, I mean, I just, like, I, I just felt so bad for my parents, frankly. Like, like, like it's like they finally got me past the finish line, right? Like, <laughs> she's, like, an adult. <laughs> like, we finally ha have a grandkid, you know? And then to, like, have this ridiculous, exhausting diagnosis. I just felt so bad for them. And, like, but they reacted so beautifully. Like, my mom is... Um, She's a six on the Enneagram. <laughs> so she's a phobic six. <laughs> so <laughs> she's terrified, like just terrified of bad things happening. And then her like daughter gets stage four cancer out of the blue. And like I will say that both my parents reacted with such tremendous faith. Mm. Like they got really still and like really just filled up with love. Mm. Like they didn't run around getting crazy and desperate, even though like the it totally called for people running around getting crazy and desperate. And they just, like, they really took their own kind of, like, they, they, they rallied their churches. And they just, they seemed to, like, get taller and stronger mm. the worse things got. I think that was mostly because of their communities of faith, like, just being them. And they never, they never, like, got, like, you know, like, clingy. Like, they would do stuff that was dumb. Like, when I was for sure going to die that year, my mom was, like, teaching me how to make, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. And, like, I was, like, I didn't want to say, like, Mom, this is dumb. Like, I'm never going to get to do this next year. You know, but there's, like, a no matter whatness to love yeah. that just said, like, they just kept pouring into me, and then they kept asking other people to pour into them. Yeah. 
And I, as it turns out, that works. So. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so. that, that's a really vivid picture of, of grace, that unnecessariness and uh, absurdity. Yeah. Uh, very well, especially because my dad's super scary. Like, he's not <laughs> like a, like a, he's not like, he studies Santa Claus, but he's not like a Santa Claus type. Wh right, what, what is your dad, well, what is, yeah, what's his, so his area of expertise? He's Mr. Yes. Christmas. Uh, yeah. He's uh He's the world's expert on Christmas. Uh, he's written um, like a zillion books, like academic histories of Christmas um, for no money as far as I can tell. <laughs> and like, if you Google him just because it's fun, there's these horrible photos of him like wearing a fake beard with like really scary hands out. And like what I can only interpret as murderous <laughs> eyes because he was like, why, why, why did I do this to myself and my family? But um, yeah, so he, he just thinks about Christmas constantly. And, um, and it was just super funny to see this like guy who's not much of a teddy bear just be, he was completely certain that I was going to live. And, like, in a way that didn't annoy me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, sure, sure, Dad, keep it to yourself. Yeah. It was just kind of lovely. Yeah, it, it, it seems especially um, contrasted to a lot of the work that you've done with Prosperity Gospel, like the expectation yeah. is for power and presence in yeah. dramatic ways. And so I think maybe that reviewer, um, maybe unbeknownst to himself, kind of falls into some of those traps. Uh, so I yeah. do think it's sort of funny to have, like, um, so my new book is about, like, um, Christian female celebrities, and um, it is a little bit funny to think about this being on the market as, like, a, like um, a consumable, you know, because as it turns out, my experience of death and God is, like, not on the market, right? Like, I'm, like, I'm so not interested in reviews where, like, did you experience God in the hospital? Wrong. <laughs> like, well, I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> I really, yeah, I like, I'm like utterly unselfconscious about the whole thing because like none of it was anything I earned. Everything that was beautiful happened to me and it's just me trying to learn that lesson. You talk about this idea of control in your book. Yeah. And it's how prosperity gospel, it's all about you've got the control. If you can say the right words and believe the right thing, you've got the control. But you point out there's nothing in our lives. We weren't. We didn't choose how we were born. We nothing about our our bones, our yeah. our DNA. It, it's all out of our control. And yeah. again, that's this, this this American kind of idea that I can will my way through this, no matter what. Um, so you're you have a surgery that you don't expect to survive. You survive the surgery, mm -hmm. and then you begin to see what your treatment treatment options are. And you, lucky you, yeah, so lucky have you. magic cancer. A super magical cancer. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Well, so there's just, I don't know. I, I And some people react to their illness by becoming an expert. I didn't. So I made up terrible terms to make sense of things to myself. Like when I declared that I had magical cancer. Because <laughs> I had... Uh, uh, a mismatch repair disorder, which meant that cells kept duplicating itself, which is why I got the tumor at my age in the first place. But um, there's two variations of that. One where it multiplies and it's a death sentence because you can't control it with any drug. And one where um, it just creates genetic markers that makes you more open to um, new immunotherapy treatments. So I had a 3% chance of having that kind of cancer. And when I heard the odds, I was like, oh, I'm in the, I'm in the bad seven. That's the kind, well, I'll for sure. You know, you're just, your brain is always positive that you know how this ends. And uh, so when I, I, was, I was so surprised to be, uh, you know, um, able to take advantage of certain kinds of immunotherapy drugs, but it's all at the very beginning stages. So you, you enter into a trial, like the... <laughs> So funny. There's two, like, the words immunotherapy makes it sound like this is, like, vitamin C treatment, and it's going to be really exciting, and also essential oils. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's, like, most people, I mean, people will, because it's messing with your immune system, like, a lot of people die on these treatments um, because it alters the way your body understands what's foreign and what's not. So, for instance, the fact that I have this endless cold is like because I'm immune depleted, <laughs> which means I, it's like I'm out there licking every banister. <laughs> so I like I'm always <laughs> anyway. Um, 
So uh, what they did when they put me in this immunotherapy thing was they, they thought they would um, try out a protocol, and some of it had really good consequences and some of it not so good. Um, at some point, and when you read the book, this is a, b a big point in the book. Um, I'm just going to give it away. Yeah, dang it. Cool. I'm here. Now, <laughs> I'm a no, hologram, you, actually. You started, <laughs> yeah. uh, while, while you were uh, going through treatment, you started writing what you were experiencing, what offended you yeah. about <laughs> being sick, what offended you about people who were just trying to help. Yeah. Um, and you sent that to the New York Times, and they published it. No. So the first bit I did was I was like, oh, my gosh, I think I have my own prosperity gospel. I am clearly the worst heretic of them all. And then I wrote it up very privately, largely in a chemo chair. And then I sent it to a friend who had the, um, Molly Worthen, who you had on your podcast. Yes, yeah. And then she sent it to her editor. And then um, they were like, great, great, great. And then they published it. And then I'd forgotten about that part. And then like 10 million people read it. And I had not changed my email. So that means I got like about 5,000 pieces of email. Because right. I thought the point was to say, in the worst, I can't say there's a formula, and it really is painful when people like pour certainty on my suffering. Like, don't explain to me what the reason is. I like God is there. Like, I'll figure it out somehow. And then people are like, cool, cool, cool. I also have a reason I would very much like to share with you. I'm so glad I have your email address. <laughs> I'll be sending it promptly. So I got like 5,000 suggestions uh, of what to eat or faith principles to try or spiritual things I should improve on. Like people really think I should get to work and they had some ideas. But, but a few of those people really made an impact on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because most things are done largely out of love, um, there are some really beautiful, I mean, I think my main takeaway was just, I can't believe how many people that I meet are like living after the worst day of their life. That just blew my mind. It really did. And like how much everyone is struggling to find meaning without saying that it was for that purpose. That was really beautiful. You and talk and a, lo a lot about the book. Uh, in the book, you talk a lot about um, imagining the world without you. You know, you're imagining what Zach's future is like. Yeah. And you're telling people, make sure Tobin gets remarried and, yeah, he's and so all beautiful. this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, but but you, you go through so much of this just kind of assuming you're not going to be around. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how other people react, but I immediately had, like, double brain. Like, one brain is positive that I was absolutely going to die and I had to make a lot of plans. I made every plan. I made every plan. I mean, I did paperwork. And, um, and then the other part, I think, is just the human part, which imagines that you can never picture yourself ever coming to the end of yourself. And so I was always arrogantly and happily and joyfully making plans. And so I, piv I feel like I have to, like, toggle back and forth between them. So, like, having this book come out into the world, like, like that little, the little dedication I did at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. No, you're fine. You keep receipts. We've got a lot of <laughs> stuff here, Chris. Um, See if there's any for coffee. He, yeah, yeah, he yeah, gave yeah. up coffee for Lent, oh, and right. I'm not so sure he's sticking to it. We'll talk about Lynn in a second. <laughs> he, Chris gave oh, up coffee for Lynn, and then he calls me. He's like, hey, can you get four pounds of uh, coffee from those guys in St. Louis? We only needed three. I'll send three. you my address. <laughs> you yeah, we only needed three. So. <laughs> just, one, just one hit. Totally. Yeah. I was, like, I, was, I was in the chemo chair in Atlanta beside one of my favorite nurses named Meg, and I wrote, I just wrote the dedication to a book I hadn't written. And I said, Zach, my darling, I can see now how my beautiful life was always for you. And like, I did basically everything out of hope. Like, and then I just wrote what was in the book, basically like, blah. <laughs> it was like me worrying that I was going to short circuit my laptop, crying. Um, and then I like, I didn't ever think I'd get here. So it came out like two weeks ago. And it's been really weird to be like, oh, I <laughs> didn't plan for this part. <laughs> so I keep like living into a future I didn't expect. Right, and that's kind of one of the the morals of the book, isn't it? Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> don't skip to the end. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and I, th I think that's true of God, and I'm hoping it's true of us. Is like God can continue to surprise us. You know, I just I don't want to assume that just because I don't th 
you know, every time I suffer, I don't want to assume that there's some, like, cosmic lesson there. But at the same time, I would like to be perpetually open to wonder and joy and God intervening when I don't expect it. Like, I can't run the math on my life should mean something really satisfying for me. Like, I'm not necessarily going to be the person. I'm just going to have to stay Job in the story where <laughs> it's like, this is the worst, comma, and also God was there. So con concerning not skipping ahead, I thought it was really beautiful how you organized the book around marking time liturgically in a particularly um, laugh laughable <laughs> was your Lenten observance <laughs> that first year. Oh, sure. Um, I'm back in it. Yeah, I've yeah. also taken okay. up something for Lent. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah. I was going to ask what, what, this, what yeah. this Lent is about. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell us about that. Well, so... Maybe uh, you censor yourself when you do it. Yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. We, we yeah, can yeah. do that in yeah. post. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. There are children. There are children present. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I took up cursing for Lent. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I'm like, I've been a casual swearer, but like, I became profoundly committed. I have to two yeah. coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to like, uh, yeah, there was a lot of F-bombs that came out and like around my sweet mother-in-law and around like, like I hid nothing. Um, and it took me a while to realize like part of the outrage was that, um, was that like no one seemed to know it was Lent. And every church service I went to, like when I went to the Lakewood Church, was like, Happy Good Friday. Um, Happy Good Friday. Everyone was thrilled that we were marching toward the cross. And uh, I was just like, I was so bummed out because I had expected that there would be a moment in the church calendar where people are on my side, like on the side of the broken and they can't get it together and like really struggling. And I was, like, so bummed out that everyone seemed so thrilled <laughs> about <laughs> their life. So I really committed to swearing. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And then it's so funny, though, because I, I had a rough scan a couple, like, two months ago, which turned out to be a medical error, uh, thank <laughs> God. And, um, but it was, like, I spent a whole week thinking again that I was going to die this year. And then, like, the swearing came back like that. <laughs> so, like, I think so disciplines <laughs> yeah. are for. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. right. No, it, it it did strike me that that most of for for those of us who observe some some sort of Lenten observance, you know, we we begin that season marked with ashes, and we have it. It is this actual. It becomes often this time to become better or um. to mortify more or something, um, and, and so so that someone in the middle of suffering that probably does not need any of those reminders, it becomes this irreverent and excessive thing in the opposite direction yeah. that is is actually probably beautiful and something something that you're you needed to experience well yeah. I, I just think it's so hard though like not to just make lent another works righteousness heresy right like if i do this surely i will be suffering much like jesus suffered it's like really is that kind of it or are you trying to like take something apart because because god promises to fill the space like, not because you're getting somewhere magical. So, yeah, I think it's it's hard to, like, it's hard to just remember, like, churches are meant to be jubilant and beautiful places, but they're also the place where people went when they had the plague. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what the entire medieval church understood, is, like, the little bits of reminders we want, like the candles and the crosses and the everything, is because, like, we're just desperate to find something to hold on to. Like, we have to assume the brokenness or else we're someplace that I'm not sure God imagined. You talk about uh, feeling God's presence, right? And, yeah. and being afraid of that feeling slipping away from you. When, when Hallie got sick, uh, I talk about works righteous. I said the rosary like five times a day. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt the presence of God. I prayed with er, anyone who would pray with me, I prayed. I prayed yeah. night and day. Yeah. And I, but I felt God with me you know we my wife and I we felt God with us like through this the worst days of our lives and then and then things got better yeah you know slowly uh, we got into uh we got to our new normal of life and I, I remember being back to work and uh feeling that slipping away oh. feeling that had sl slipped away that feeling yeah and I turned to somebody I work with who had just lost his mother to cancer and he had spent the last two months of of 
for life with her. And, and I was like, if I could get back to the guy I was when Hallie first got sick, that feeling. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, he's like, yeah, I felt it when my mother was dying. And, and it was all about faith. And you're just going, you're just suffering every day. And you're, you're going on faith in, faith in God. Yeah. And, yeah. and you talk about that in this book. Yeah. And taking it to other people who've suffered and, say, and they all saying, it goes, it does go. Well, and like I was talking to my friend Laura, who's always smarter than me, and I said, like, Laura, I know it's, and I think it's gone, but it was so beautiful when it was there, and there was like a purity to it, that like really feeling intimacy, like just like that sense of God's love for like, in a powerful way, maybe for that first time in my life, and and she's like, oh honey, you've been someplace, and now the trick is, you have to go back and you have to tell people about it but you can't tell them it's Disneyland. <laughs> I was like, that's so true. <laughs> but, but it's so easy to be like, God is amazing. <laughs> Come on down. But it's like path of horrible and suffering. Like we don't have a lot to advertise. It's, it's like uh, I remember one specific day, and we didn't know we were going to go to St. Jude until 24 hours before we decided to go. Yeah. And um, we were packing the van uh, to, to get ready to go to Memphis. From We were in Charlotte at the time. And I remember walking to pack the van and, and just praying, God, I can't take a step. You, every step I take is, you're taking it for me. And that, but there was this magic in that feeling. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you really capture that in words, and that's amazing that you were able to do that. It's so dumb, but like the analogy from the, please forgive me, for the Indiana Jones movie where he like has the <laughs> sand, you know, and he's like stepping out into the terrible chasm. But, like, that is sort of how it felt all the time. Like, every time I'd have a moment where I was genuinely at the end of what I can do. And it's not that, I mean, there's so few times now when you're, I've been struggling with this lately. Because now my day is filled with little things I can control. And I miss, actually, the purity of feeling like I learned something about who God is. I mean, I'm grateful for the comfort I really am. I'm grateful to be bored sometimes and to be back watching reality television. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I, mi I miss the, the sense of purpose and closeness that I got when, um, when everything came apart. How much time we got? Not much. But I'm uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, this is wonderful, and I hate to cut it short. Um, we're going to take a few questions, probably three or four questions, uh, and you can just come to the mic and ask them. Um, You're brave enough. But, but, but I'd also, uh, I'll put Kate on the spot, which we've been doing this whole time. Sure, hey. But uh, Kate has an amazing podcast as well. And so I, I'd give you an opportunity to ask um, questions, ask Bob a question if you'd like, if you have something uh, you all just met. But uh, I'd well love we're best friends yeah. already. Yeah. Besties. <laughs> okay. Well, you have a shiny life now, again. <laughs> What's a something you took with you? That reminds you of who you were before? Bitterness. Seriously? I had a friend, uh, yes and no, but but no, no, no. Uh, w what I what I have now <laughs> that I... Bitterness, <laughs> that's a reality. Well, that's great. Well, it, it's, no, it's I, like I had somebody call me a couple months ago, and they found out that their child's special needs. Yeah. And he's like, man, I just, I know you go through this. Like, how do you deal with it? I was like, anger, yeah. bitterness. Yeah. I go to playgrounds. I see little girls running around with their dads. I'm like, yeah. oh, you think you're so cool? Your daughter can run around? You yeah, know, like, yeah, 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 like yeah, and yeah. it was a joke. Yeah. But it was like, yeah. it was a kind of a, a serious thing. Wh when I, I left yeah. work for a year, and when I came back, and I would be sitting around the guys, and they're talking about the newest, best restaurant in town, or $200 pair of jeans, yeah. I'd have to leave the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I knew it was on me. You know, I, I, at the moment, we were just talking about this. Like, I couldn't see ignorance. I couldn't suffer BS. Yeah. Um, and now I can. Now I like uh, good restaurants and $200 pair of jeans, too, sometimes. Yeah. But, um, but the, the fact that, and you say this, too, um, life is beautiful, life is hard. And, that, and that's really, it, it both, the human heart is, uh, is big enough and complex enough to hold both absolute joy and absolute sorrow yeah. together yeah. at the same time. With every step you take, you can feel them both, and that's not a contradiction. That's right. Like, it's all part of what we are. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
And I think the anger is good. It's a little outrage that says yeah, like I think so too. I think it's healthy. I think so. Yeah. It says like the world is not just on Instagram. I think yeah. and you say that too. In the book, Kate says, uh, I'm I I am i am dying of cancer and everybody's on Instagram. <laughs> and we and my wife and I felt that. Yeah. And and when people come to you with their problems, you know, they're yeah. like Oh, you know, this or that. Yeah, yeah. someone You're the other like, day uh, said, like, um, you know, people, really, whatever. And I was like, don't, you can't talk to me about people yeah. anymore. People so seem fine, so but I'm not one really of them. really quick, the appendix to your oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, everybody, it's get out your books. <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant, okay, for someone who's, who's walked a uh, somewhat similar path. She has two appendixes. One of them is, is what never to say to someone who's suffering basically. And they're really funny and really serious and, and spot on. And then the second appendix is give this a go and, and try this instead. Yeah. And so right there, Aww, worth, the, worth the price of a book. Uh, and uh, thank you, Kate. Yeah, but let's get so some questions. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Not everyone has to be first, but somebody has it's to. Because so the mic's up front. Yeah. It's, it's no, it's good. It's good. It's also an altar call. <laughs> Please come forward. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There's a baptistry behind this curtain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We can head right back. So thank you for speaking words into those of us who have suffered mm. and can relate um, in some way, shape, or form. But I would love for you to speak on what it's like to have value when you can't be productive at work. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, don't ask. That's the, <laughs> that's the hardest question. I can, give you a, I can give you an easier one. No, no, that's the perfect <laughs> question. Have value when you can't be productive. Because there's this letter that someone wrote to me, and he was a guy in his 20s, and he said, um, you know, I have this terrible illness, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, I wanted to go to school, and I just worry that everything has come to nothing. And, like, I think about that guy a lot because – um, a lot of how I got to handle how terrible it was by being productive. And so I got to actually hold on to the heresy I was writing about abandoning, which is that I can't earn my way out of this. <laughs> so um, I think there is something that needs to be learned about cultivating stillness and like allowing like community to make you realize that you can't do most things yourself. But on productivity, I have learned nothing. So, <laughs> thank you for your horrible question. It was perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Carla. So, Kate, you have a adorable young son, um, and s perhaps he's getting older than you imagined when you were writing the book. How do you talk to him about what is happening? It was harder before when I had more visible signs of my illness like I had to wear a lot of chemotherapy fluids and I've always had like a needle that goes into my chest and so I got to have that out recently and like so there's less that looks cancery you know what I mean yeah so it's just hard to like um and this is against like visible versus invisible disability um but um I developed stupid techniques for helping him interact with something that was more durable than me. I was very often a puppet named Mr. Seal that he could wrestle with, like, when he couldn't touch me. But it's been the mo part of the most exhausting bit about, like, being his mom and not being able to be as, like, fully, like, super mom, like, the whole mythology. So I'm trying to learn something in that, that, like, he can learn something about fragility and beauty even though I can't always be everything. But that's the thing I struggle, I think, the most with is I'm always, like, really, I go right to, like, shame if I can't do everything I always hope to do. Yeah. One up, Ash. Hello, my dear. Join me. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of me just saying you're amazing. Oh, thanks. So I'll take it. Let's do it. <laughs> Start at the beginning. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I love you so much. Um, <laughs> so my maiden name is Job. Um, and Aww. I got married, and I kind of felt like that cloud yeah. kind of dissipated a little bit. <laughs> and I don't know why I always kind of, like, carry this cloud of Job. I just kind of felt like, when is the axe going to fall? Yeah. And then when I got cancer at 16, I was oh. like, this is it. You know, like, it's happening. Um, it's, it's a lot. Um, so I guess my question more is, especially as I struggle with my faith, is, like, what do you do with – your book ended, and I kind of was expecting the chapter of I'm well. Yeah. And that's the whole thing part of being in remission that's kind of hard is you feel like a hypochondriac all the time. You're like, what is that? What is that? What, you know, am, am I sick again? Is it yeah. happening? Yeah. So I don't think many people talk about the part of faith where you don't feel like you're being faithful enough when you don't feel well even when you are and you present well and it's yeah. 
going somewhat well. Yeah. Can we talk about sure. what that's like to be kind of like perpetually in limbo? Oh, my dear. Wow. <laughs> Sending you a giant hug right now. <laughs> yeah. Come <Well, laughs> yeah, on down. <laughs> Man, well, like, honestly, it sounds like you have stuff to teach me. Like, uh, so I'm at the very edge of, like, uh, they don't use a lot of happy words for me because they don't have a lot of data on my drug. So I stay in perpetual hypochondriac mode. Like, I got a flu and had a scan, and then I thought I was dying last week. Because I just, your brain gets confused. Um, I think part of it is trying to... um, have generosity toward like just the fragility of bodies in general. Um, it's hard to create. Um, also, I have like really high guardrails for my mind. I try really hard like not to talk about sad things after 8 p.m. or like try not to absorb too much terrible and then like reinfuse with joy because like you're just going to be more limited than other people because it's richer and deeper. And like that's my hope, right? Is that we're like part of the secret fellowship of the afflicted. And we get things, but we get more tired. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm so new to this part that I, I'm, I'm struggling a lot. I, I can't make my brain think in the future. I, I get stuck on things like being sick in the hospital and thinking I'm dying again. Yeah, it's been hard. But it mostly has to do, I think, with like learning to be still and reabsorb joy. Thanks. We'll do one more. Thanks, Ray. Hey, two of you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Judith, um, so I have a question. Um, I'm from the Netherlands, and so I was wondering, why do American Christians, so or many American Christ- Christians, so desperately want a reason for suffering? And why I'm asking this, so uh, my little girl um, had heart problems, mm-hmm. has heart problems, and so last summer she, all, uh, she needed surgery, and after the surgery, was a big thrombus and she, she could go to the brain, she could die. Yeah. But like, so we were suffering there with our community in the Netherlands and no one was saying like yeah. what the reason was of the, of the suffering. It was just there and they yeah. were there with us. So, and now I'm here, I, I just sometimes, like I have very good American friends, so I'm so <laughs> thankful that I can just <laughs> share the honest version, but still I sometimes yeah. feel like that yeah. I have to say like what I've learned and how good it is in the end. And, uh, oh, buddy, yes. Yeah, and so I was just yeah. wondering, like, you're, you are an historian, yeah, so yeah. I'm just wondering. Yeah, like, welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah totally. well, why, why is this? Why? Uh, yeah, wow. That is, uh, that I- you're totally right that there is, like, this, c- there's a cultural baggage that comes from being here and having to express gratitude and a constant progress. Yeah, you always have to, and sometimes I even notice just to get out of conversations, my voice has to go, like just to create that mental out to be like, and it was fine, and thanks so much. I'm, yeah. um, and the the emotional work it's creating in your life is is exhausting. Absolutely. Like you're just someone that is meant to be loved and supported. You're not somebody else's intellectual problem to be solved. Yeah, thank you so much. Are you going to write the history of suffering? well the only thing I'm learning about is hope so we'll just work on that for a little bit there's just something uh, and you talk about this it's like where did we we found God in our friends like God was sitting beside us because our friends were sitting beside us and it was it was about it was about the act it was about suffering like openly mourning what had happened and suffering and that's good and but in America we have we just we have a problem with that. Like I, I also like what was so hard about for me was listening to those last two books, realizing or the last two chapters on Audible and realizing there's this isn't going to be a happy ending. You know, mm-hmm. like this isn't going to be the ending mm-hmm. that my American mm-hmm. uh, upbringing of storytelling has yeah. has taught me to yeah. expect. Yeah, and that was hard. That was that was was hard. The the appendix softened that a little bit, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I really don't have a question on that, but uh, but it just it's very pr- that is a you brought out a great point about how we are in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we're out of time, and, uh, unless yeah. you have a last no, word. No, thanks yeah. so much for having me. You guys are beautiful. I'm so grateful.
I really want to thank Bob and the Road thank to Now podcast. Thank you. Um, also, Scratch Bakery and La Cosecha Coffee. Also, the Gathering Church helped sponsor uh, the reception after this. We're really thankful for them. And thank you to all of you guys. This thank is you amazing. So much, yes, thank you. Incredible. Everybody go buy a book. And it's a